Recording live from the Lucky Number 7 Lounge in the basement of Dine Drink Travel World Headquarters in the barren wastelands of far west Texas. This is Dine Drink Vegas, the podcast by and for everybody stuck at home but wishing they were in the land of neon lights and bad decisions. I'm your host, John, also known as the baller on a budget, and in episode 17, well, at 17, you're almost old enough to curse in public, so we call BS on the BCS and share some Vegas WTF news. And we'll get it all started with the drink of the day. But before we can do any of that, we have to introduce the founder of Dine Drink Travel, the king of comps, the leader in the luxury lounge, the high roller of the high plains, the man who is always eagerly waiting for that limo to take him away to the resort. It's Bill. Come on in and say howdy, Bill. Hey, John. How are you today? I am having a lovely evening. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I am also doing great because I've already got our drink of the day, which I think is fantastic. Do tell, do tell. So what we're going to be talking about later on today is college football. Um, And we'll go into several different things, right? The point spreads, because this is a Vegas show, so we're going to talk about you know, how we see the games breaking down. We're going to talk a lot, of, a lot about whether it's fair, but when I'm watching college football, I don't want a complex cocktail. I don't have that kind of time because I'm probably into the game. And the guys that I usually watch football with aren't into making fancy drinks. So we decided to pour whiskey in a glass, but we decided to pour good whiskey in a glass. Now, last week, John, you were on a work trip, and I asked you to pick this bottle up for me because the city you were going to, you could get it. But every year in the fall, Maker's Mark releases their private label select. Um, It... Pardon me, it's usually about 70 bucks or so. Is that what you paid for this bottle? Yeah, 75 plus uh, tax and whatnot. All right, so it's gone up just a tiny touch. Well, still- and, and that's not just the normal version. I mean, they, they spexed us some... Yeah, no, so we'll Magic talk Juju. about No, we'll talk about the special bottles in just a second. So it's it's an expensive bottle of whiskey, but it's also a number you can get your head around for a high-end bottle. And every year it's fantastic. And every year they tell you what they do with it is they put a certain number of staves in each barrel to give it a very particular um, flavor profile. But this year they had different combinations of the Maker's Mark Private Selection. And we went with a bottle called Birthday Cake, which was specifically done for um, specs. It has in it it has, it's 108.5 proof, and that's about normal. It's always a higher proof alcohol. That's why, even though I would normally sip an expensive whiskey like this neat, we elected to put, I elected to put an ice cube in it just to kind of cool it down a little bit and water it down a little bit. Well, and I will say that like with a high proof spirit, you know, there, there's a myth out there that real whiskey drinkers always drink whiskey straight. If you watch some of the old heads that have uh, Scottish guys who have Scottish YouTube whiskey channels, they very often add water or ice, usually water on the videos to whiskey. So you bought it, you paid for it. The right way to drink whiskey is the way you like it. So don't let anybody tell you, you can't add a little water. You can't add ice. You can't use it to mix with you do you and some whiskeys, a little dilution's a nice thing. Well, and I'm actually enjoying this whiskey now that the ice has been melting for about two minutes, even more than I did when I had a sip of it neat. But what they put here, the stave profile here was two baked American pure, four seared French cuvée. They didn't put any Maker's Mark staves in it. They put four roasted French mendiant and no toasted French spice. Um, but those are the varying you know, kinds of saves they might put into it. To me, what always comes out in the private selection is that it 
I mean, you can taste the oak and you can taste it pretty aggressively. But to me, and so John, you're better at whiskey notes. You can describe what we're <laughs> tasting better than I can. But to me, the birthday cake description is not bad. I, it, it's almost like I'm picking up some pretty heavy notes of vanilla. What are you yeah, tasting in and, this? And vanilla is not unusual in a toasted oak barrel. But yeah, there's a there's a creaminess to, to this that really does uh, <laughs> remind you. Excuse me, I'm drinking my neat and it got to me. <laughs> um, it really does remind you of cake frosting. Like that really is, you know, it, it, it really is that character of vanilla where it's it's not quite marshmallow marshmallowy although they did have a version they call toasted marshmallow and i've gotten that notes from other whiskeys but it really is it's it's like a good cake frosting not that fondant stiff stuff that they do because it looks pretty and tastes terrible like a like like your grandma's best homemade vanilla frosting for your cake when you were five which is a really weird flavor to associate with with bourbon uh but actually not in my family because grandma liked to nip now and then um <laughs> uh, but yeah i really get why they say this is birthday cake because i can abs- absolutely get there and it's not y'all don't mistake us it's not sweet like it's a woo girl college drink right like no it's it's still a bourbon there's just some some notes under that of stuff which is incredibly pleasant so as high-end bottles go, I love it. The other thing that I like is it's not one of those bottles you can't get. It's not like you're searching for old you know, Rip Van Winkle 12-year-old, right? Like the Pappy that you got to pay a 1000 bucks for if you can find it. You can pretty reliably find this, but most of the time you can also only find it, at least here in Texas, you can only find it in the fall. So it's not always available which makes it a nice combination between being a special bottle, but not one that you can just walk down to your corner store and get whenever you want. It's interesting. I just added an ice cube to mine after, after drinking a good bit of it straight. I always associate Maker's Mark with orange and vanilla notes. Right. I wasn't really picking up on the orange note that I associate with Maker's Mark until I popped the ice cube in there, and almost instantly that opened up a little bit for me. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to letting this ice cube melt and taking sips along the way to seeing the evolution of the drink as it dilutes. So I'm not tasting the orange notes that you are, but that is probably a me problem because I typically put orange bitters into my bourbon. I didn't do that time because that this time because I wanted to just enjoy the whiskey. But that's probably why I'm not noticing the orange. I quite often add orange to mine. Yeah, and it is. I mean, it is a pretty subtle note. Uh, and I've I've got several more years of whiskey drinking under my belt, like a. Started at 13. So I've got a lot more experience <laughs> tasting whiskeys. And so my palate, I would like to think, is fairly uh, fairly reliable yeah. on whiskey things. And Maker's Mark is nice. I was actually watching a documentary, and they talked about the history of the distillery. So this the Samuels family was originally known in the, in the 19th century for making pretty average bourbon. Uh, and after prohibition, you know, almost every distillery had to shut down unless they were throwing out things for medicinal purposes. Uh, by the time the industry got back into full swing, the alcohol industry in America, we had dealt with World War II and GIs were coming home with a taste for scotch. And in northern states during prohibition, a lot of people had developed a taste for Canadian whiskeys, which are a lot smoother in flavor profile because... Um, that's just how Canada rolls. And if during prohibition, it was, you know, they were sneaking Canadian whiskey across the border. Like they're sneaking, I don't know, weed across the Mexican border now. 
Uh, so bourbon was seen as old fashioned. It was seen as a rough, cheap spirit, something, you know, cowboys and homeless people drank. And, and so Bill Samuels, who was the third generation really wanted to get back into distilling business, tried and kind of failed for a while. The actual, uh, JT Samuels brand got bought up by another manufacturer and is still available in Kentucky and the, and, and the mid South. I've never seen a bottle in Texas. And, and they actually had to improve the recipe because it really was kind of rot gut bourbon. Uh, but Bill Samuels winds up burning the family re- uh, recipe, decides to take the wheat out. I mean, the rye out and go for wheat. So bourbon's got to be at least 51% corn. You need 10% malt barley in order when you're fermenting what they call the mash to have the enzyme so the yeast can eat up all the sugar and then pee out alcohol because that's how this happens. And then you have an accent grain. So in bourbon, it's normally rye. And uh, you can have high rye or low rye, depending on how spicy you want it, because rye has a very spicy, almost cinnamony flavor. Um, Sometimes rye can even come across like eucalyptus, like medicinal. He decided to go with wheat, but he and his wife went through, and they couldn't, you know, make, distill, and age 100 batches of whiskey they started baking bread loaves with their grain bill and they tried out a hundred different recipes, including many varieties of that wheat. That is fascinating. Until, I had no idea. Yeah. And then they finally got to a loaf of bread that tasted right. And that became Maker's Mark, which was the first premium bourbon and bourbon historians, which I missed my calling. I should have gone into that degree field. They credit uh, Bill Samuels and Maker's Mark for saving the bourbon industry and making bourbon a respectable beverage. Because in in the post-World War II era, it, it was just considered something that drunk college kids and hobos drank. So, you know, Maker's Mark, we owe, we owe the um, vast selection of bourbon in the modern liquor store to, to Maker's Mark. Well, here, here. Thank you, Maker's Mark. And thank you for my membership in your ambassador program where occasionally I get some free stuff. But we've talked about this before. My preference for bourbons is wheated bourbons anyway, like Maker's Mark or Weller. So yeah, no, this is this was always going to be in my mm. sweet spot. Yeah, and I, I kind of cut my teeth on on uh, Weller uh, Antique back when it was readily available. My granddaddy was a poor man, and he tended to keep two bottles around. Jim Beam was for uh, normal days, and Weller was for special occasions. Uh, and I might have been known to sneak into Granddaddy's cabinet once in a while. And I definitely preferred the Weller to the Jim Beam. Uh, and I've been hooked ever since. And most of my life, I could buy Weller Antique or Weller 12-year-old any day I wanted at a reasonable price. And then the Pappy craze happened. So if you're chasing the Pappy Dragon, stop. Just buy. Makers has a number of varieties out there. Buy Makers until the market settles down. And then when prices for Weller and Pappy come back down where they belong and you can buy them at MSRP, then buy whichever one you like better. But honestly, Pappy and Weller are not better than Maker's Mark. They're a little bit different. The recipes are extremely similar, if not identical, but where and how you age bourbon changes the flavor. So I'm not saying any version of Weller tastes exactly like Pappy or, I mean, excuse me, any version of Maker's Mark tastes exactly like Pappy or Weller. But it's good enough. Yeah, no, fair. Um, it. I think it's more than good enough. I think it's great. The problem is that I think I would need three or four more glasses of it 
to really be ready to talk about our next topic, which or our, our deep dive of the day, which is what they did with the BCS. But duty calls, and it's time to move on. So listeners, if this is your first time joining our podcast, what we do every time after we talk about the drink of the day is we take a deep dive into something particular about Vegas. One of the major activities which happens in Vegas is sports betting, right? And John and I are both big fans of college football, even if both of our teams had horrible years this year. It it wasn't good. Fortunately, we're not talking about either of those teams today. But we're going to talk for a while about the college football playoff. And we're going to talk about whether it was fair. We're going to talk about what it would look like next year in the 12-team playoff. And then we'll obviously talk about the point spreads and the over-unders for the college football playoff matchups. But John, I guess let's talk. Let's start with the big question. There are four teams in the playoff: Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama. Who that left out was Florida State, who was an undefeated um, Power Five champion. Georgia, who was twelve and one and had been a juggernaut for most of the year, and you know a couple of other pretty good teams like Ohio State and Oregon. But the real object here is Florida State didn't lose a game. They're not in even though Texas and Alabama, both of whom did lose a game, are in. So, did the BCS get this one right? No. All right, so what would you have done instead? So, at the end of the day, if you go undefeated and you are the champion of one of the Power Five conferences, unless the other four conference champions are also undefeated, and then the committee has to make a decision, you're in. And, and I get it, Florida State's quarterback was injured. I get it that they might not have been at full strength going into this. But if the regular season means anything, I mean, look, Alabama beat, I mean, Texas beat Alabama in the regular season, right? So we've got, uh, I could see, you know, Washington and Michigan getting in. They were undefeated. They deserve their place. And I think, to me, both of those teams were pretty clearly better right. than Florida State. I mean, Michigan won three games without their own head coach. I think Michigan's yeah. just good and, at football this and, year. And I get that. But but my point is, you've got two undefeated teams who got in. Then you have three one-loss teams they have to pick from. Georgia's out because their one loss was in the conference champion. Look, you, you didn't win when it counted. Sorry, that's what happens. Uh, because, you know, if you could just go by, well, we won every game before this, my TCU Horn Frogs could brag, but they didn't win the game that counted, did they? So Georgia's out. That's what happens. Uh, Texas beat Alabama in the regular season, so Texas is in, and it should be Nick Saban, who clearly has made yet another deal with Satan, who should be watching this game from home, not the Florida State team. This is wrong. I want to agree with you. Right, because it doesn't make any sense to me that Florida State's not in, because otherwise, why play the games? But there are two problems. One, it's hard for me to imagine a college football playoff without the best team from the SEC, because you've got, you have, in next year's playoff, you would have, what, four playoff teams from the SEC? You have a whole lot of very good teams that you have to play all the time. Um, And I think that deserves at least some weight. The other thing is, I'm looking at Florida State's football schedule from this year, and I don't see any big wins, right? Like, the best win that Florida State had might be that week one win against LSU. There were no big late season wins. There weren't any other wins which were close to big wins. And I think think Alabama's resume... Yeah, they've got that loss to Texas, and yes, that is in week two of the season, and yeah, that loss is a real problem, 
but they've got, I think they've got bigger wins. Critically, they had a win over Georgia. They had a win over the two-time defending national champion, which would otherwise have been going to the playoffs. So how do you deal with the fact that Florida State didn't have any really big wins. Okay, so first of all, part of the point of going to a playoff system is so that we get away from reading the tea leaves and all of that, which has been one of the biggest problems with Division One A college football forever. Second of all, I want to go back to what you just said about it seems wrong to do this without, uh, without the SEC getting in there. And it's not going to be a perfect analogy, but in a way that's sort of like I've heard baseball fans argue that whether or not they win the AL East and whether or not they have the best record to get a wild card spot, it's just not the baseball playoffs if either the Yankees or the Red Sox don't get in there. So what the heck, let's just give them a wild card spot because that's how baseball works. And there, there is not a baseball fan outside of New England or New York that would sit well with that. And I know your squad is in the SEC, and I know the SEC thinks that they have a divine right to be represented in this thing. They don't. And and I get it. Florida State didn't have the best schedule. It's a schedule that looked a lot better on paper. Some of the teams were not as good as they thought they would be. A team can't help that. All they can do is beat the teams in front of them. The ACC may have had a down year, but still, getting through an undefeated season in a Power 5 conference, even if your conference is having a down year, it, it is still an accomplishment. And, and the point of the playoffs is the regular season's supposed to matter. Okay, so let's play the counterfactual for a second. Let's assume it's however many years ago it was, right? Like eight or ten years ago, when instead of the playoff, you've got the the essentially just two teams, right? The best two right. teams are in a national championship. And I think in that case, it's pretty clear this year that it, that would be Washington and Michigan. But again, just to play it out, let us assume that the two teams in that national championship game were this year's Florida State versus this year's Alabama. So they're both there and they're both fully motivated, right? It's not like one team is going to be less motivated than, than the other. Who do you think wins that game? probably Alabama, but that's not for sure. And let me push back on that because this is one of the reasons we have the playoff. In the scenario you just described in the bad old days, it would not be Michigan versus Washington. It would be Michigan versus Alabama because people still would have been like, but SEC. And that's why we've moved to the playoff system exactly to avoid this. So, you know, I... I can see your point. I think I would have been forced to vote the same way you're saying. I end up in the same place that you do. I just think it's less clear cut because I think Alabama, I mean, they have bigger wins. I think they've got a better resume. Um, <clears throat> and I think that, and I think they played a tougher schedule all year. And I think that that does matter. Now, the reason I still get to your same side is, okay, fine, you won your conference, you didn't lose to anybody, it was still a reasonable Power 5 schedule, that has to mean something. So I get to the same answer you do, it's just less clear-cut for me, right, in my mind. And I th I'm imagining we can both agree that we're looking forward to next year, right, when there's right. a 12-team playoff. And let's, let's go, because we're kind of beating the dead horse, but I want to get to the odds. But yeah, let's play out what would this look like under last year, uh, under next year's rules. So under next year's rules, the top four teams would have a bye. 
Um, and the top four teams this year were Michigan, Washington, Texas, and Alabama. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that if this was under next year's rules, Alabama would suddenly become the fifth seed because yes, they'd I still agree. be in the playoff. Yeah. But whatever, um, using the rankings that we came out with, those teams wouldn't be playing in the first round. They would get a bye to the quarterfinals. And there would be four different first-round games. And there's – so, of course, you as a football coach or a team, you want the first-round bye. I'm not sure that if you're at the athletic director, that's what you want because the teams who are seated five through eight actually host a home playoff game on their campus – and then once you get to the quarterfinals, it's you know more traditional bowls and right. such like that. Right. And you know there's something to be said for that. But number twelve Oklahoma would be playing at number five Florida State, who in this case would be good and well pissed off. And I think Florida State wins that game. Number eleven Ole Miss would be playing at number six Georgia, and I think Georgia would do bad bad things to Ole Miss. Number ten Penn State would be playing at number seven Ohio State. I think that'd be a lot closer game. Ultimately, I think Ohio State wins it. A home field advantage, right? Yeah. And then number nine, Missouri would be playing at number eight, Oregon. And, you know, I just didn't watch those two teams enough this year to um, say who would realistically win that game. But I'm going to go with my typical SEC bias and say that if that was the situation, uh, I think Missouri pulls something dark out of somewhere special and actually winds up beating Oregon. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think and I know I just said that Florida State belongs to the playoff this year. I think that Oklahoma matchup's a little tougher. Uh, I still think Florida State squeaks that one out. But I'm if not- you think that Oklahoma-Florida State matchup is tougher, right, then that's a pretty good argument that Florida State shouldn't be in the playoff this year, but right? But I, I would make the same argument if you flip-flop into Alabama. I, I, I really do. I think uh, I think Texas victory over over Oklahoma in in the Big 12 championship got a little out of hand. I think Oklahoma's better than they played in that game and I think Oklahoma would be a salty uh, th- that's a hard out. Oklahoma for, wasn't in the Big 12 championship. That was oh, Oklahoma right. State. Oklahoma State, excuse me, but even so Oklahoma at number 12, I think they're a tougher out. And, and they've got like I I believe in Stoops as a coach. I think that's um is Stoops still there. Yeah, I think okay, so. Yeah, anyway. Oh no, it's I, Oklahoma. I, I think that's a, I I just think that's a tougher route. Anyway, belaboring that point, let's get on to what is going to happen and let's do some odds because this is a Vegas pie, podcast. So by golly, how can people lose or win money? So, what we're going to focus on is just the two playoff games, and we're going to talk about the point spread for both of those two games as well as the over under. And we're going to start with the Michigan-Alabama game. So Michigan's dropping one and a half on Alabama, or Alabama gets a point and a half. And I don't, I, I, I don't know where my bet would go here. My inclination is to say that I would probably take Alabama plus a point and a half. And the reason I would probably take Alabama in that game is I think that Nick Saban has got a chip on his shoulder because he can hear all the people saying that he didn't deserve to be in the playoff this year. And I think an angry Nick Saban is a Nick Saban who wins playoff games. So I think Alabama wins that game. But the reason that I'm not sure is I can't tell you how impressed I was with that Michigan squad for winning three games without their head coach there, right? Like that was some really impressive stuff. So we'll talk about the over-under in a second. But John, what? How would you on the that the the spread? How would you bet? There? So you know, you know college football better than I do, but I I, I take Michigan. 
Okay, why do you take Michigan? I I I, I don't I like I I just partially I hate Nick Saban. I don't want anything good to happen to the man. But in in all honesty, I think Michigan's the better squad. I I really think they are. Okay, um, so that's that's fair, right? Like I can honestly, I probably don't bet on that game. If you were to say, Bill, here's a hundred bucks and you have to place a bet on this game. And I am holding, if you were to hold a gun to my head and be like, here's your hundred bucks back. So, but you're holding a gun to the head of my wife and children. So I, I have to bet in that case. Then I, th- I, I think I take the Alabama plus a point and a half, but gosh, I, I would rather make that bet with other people's money. Oh, I throw like five on this. Like this isn't a real bet. Okay, but fair. but I I am the low roller here, so no, it's all good. All right, so what about the point spread? So the, po- the I mean the over under. Excuse me. No, so the over under on this game, and hold on, I accidentally just clicked out of that. The over under on this game is forty six and a half, which sounds kind of low. However, and again, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't I don't know how much I bet on the Michigan versus Alabama game. But I'm looking at Michigan point totals this year. They only scored 30 on East Carolina. They only scored 35 on UNLV. They only scored 31 on Bowling Green. They only scored 31 on Rutgers. They had a couple of good games later on as they started to get going. But they're, um, so when they played Penn State, who was a legitimately good team, that was a 24-15 win. When they played Ohio State, they actually did, their offense did better. But the Michigan offense hasn't been overwhelming this year. Um, the Alabama offense has been a little bit better, but I don't know how many times they've played a defense as good as Michigan's. So my, again, I don't, don't want to take either of the bets on that game, but my inclination is to say this winds up becoming a defensive slugfest. And if, again, if you were to force me to place a bet on that game, I think I take the under. How about you? I, I, you know, I, it, it's really close. Like, you know, I think I'm, I would take the over, but again, I wouldn't put big money on this. Okay. That's fair. Right. Well, I think the more efficient way to handle that, since we disagreed on both of these beds would be for on each bet for you to put a 20 on the table and for me to put a 20 on the table and we just handle it that way yeah. instead of letting the casino take yeah. our money. Yeah. Right. Like that would yeah. be more efficient. All right, so let's talk about the other game because the other game I've actually got a lot firmer opinions on. So Washington is getting four and a half points at Texas. Texas is dropping four and a half points to Washington. I take I would take Washington anyway, but Washington plus four and a half points, take every day and twice on Sundays, right? Like that doesn't seem to me like a close bet, partially because Washington, um, I mean, they are an undefeated Power Five champion, also because Washington legitimately had some pretty good wins over the course of this year. Now, some of they they were involved in a lot of fairly close games, but Washington, um, I I I think is the better team. I think they played a stronger schedule than Texas has. In Texas, there were a couple like so. Texas has got the loss to Oklahoma. Texas only beat Houston by one touchdown. Texas had to go to overtime to beat Kansas State. Texas barely eked it out against your TCU Horned Frogs. Um, I think I would take Washington straight up, and I certainly take Washington plus four and a half. Now, let me confess my bias for the good of our, our audience. Y'all, I went to Texas A&M. I am a proud, proud Aggie. I have, I have two schools I root for at the Division I level. 
I went to graduate school at Texas A&M, so I, I yell for them proudly, and I wear my Aggie ring. And at the Division II level, I am a proud, proud Angelo State Ram. They um, routinely have an excellent Division II football team. But setting all that aside, I'm an Aggie. My bias is to not like UT things. But I think based objectively on the evidence, I, I, I take Washington plus four and a half. How about you? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, part of me, even though I'm not a, a Texas fan, you know, would like to see a team from my state go in there. Uh, as mad as I am at Texas for leaving the Big 12 for the SEC because it's bad for my league, uh, you know, I know Texas wants to make a statement as they enter the SEC. But, yeah, I, I think Washington takes this one. Yeah, no, I think I think they pretty clearly do. Now, the over-under is a more interesting bet. So the over-under there is 64.5. So the, essentially what they're saying is that the game would be something like 35 to 30 for you to collect on the over. And I actually take the under on that game. So Washington has put up some pretty impressive point totals, and they're a good team who has defeated several other good teams. But in the pack, however many they are, Pac-10, Pac, about to be Pac-2, um, in the Pacific Coast Conference, I mean, you don't have a lot of teams noted for good defense. You have a lot of teams noted for good offense. So I don't think that their offense has really been tested. And the Texas defense, as I've watched them in a couple of games this year, the Texas defense is really, really good. Yeah, I, I'm with you. This is an under. Yeah, no, that's okay. Wow, I'm so, we we've gotten to the same answer twice there, and that may be the sign that we need to move on because we've actually achieved agreement. It also means we're probably wrong, but you know, if you uh, if you happen to bet our way and you win big, or if you bet against us and win big, uh, make sure to drop us a line. Bill's going to tell you at the end where to find us, and it's everywhere. Uh, but let us know how you did with our picks or against our picks, because I'm kind of curious. All right, so the next story, we're going to stay a little bit sportsy. Those of you that hate sports but have stuck in this far, we won't belabor this one, and we won't be talking about the actual on-the-court action. But Miriam Adelson, widow of Sheldon Adelson, uh, longtime owner of the Sands, the man who built the Venetian, no longer owned by their family, but uh, was their property, has just bought the Dallas Mavericks. Rumors are flying that the Mavs may be headed to Las Vegas because Vegas wants an NBA franchise. Bill, what do you think? Is there any chance the Mavs head west? No, absolutely not. For one thing, what the Adelson family is very, very good at is making money, and they've got a money-making franchise in Dallas right now. For The other thing is, so we've talked before on this show 537 million times, and we'll do it more, about the Oakland A's moving to Las Vegas. And that makes a lot of sense because they don't have a good facility in Oakland. They don't really have a fan base in Oakland. It made sense for them to move. But there's already a huge and rabid fan base in Dallas. And I don't think a person who's really good at making money is going to move a team away from a city where she's making money. And while I don't know Mrs. Adelson's personal finances all that terribly well, I'm pretty sure she's got the kind of money that lets her get on an airplane if she wants to go and see this new thing she's bought. I don't think she needs to move them to Vegas. Yeah, and I think it would be a really bad decision, and here's why. Now, we think about Dallas as a football town. We know you know, the Cowboys and all of that. Here's the thing. Both with the Mavs and with the Rangers, 
who have become reasonable franchises. The Rangers won a world championship this year. They were in Garcia Christ. You know, they, they got, they got into the world series before that, although they lost the Mavs had put up an NBA title, but, but that's this century, right? If you go back through the history of those two franchises, especially the Mavs, Dallas fans packed the old reunion arena and supported that team when they stunk. And that city embraced them. That fan base, the only fan base I have ever seen stay loyal and even enthusiastic in the face of decades of disappointment is our wives. Let's be really honest, (laughs) right? To take this team out of Dallas, to me, would be like when they took the Colts out of Baltimore and sent them to Indy and they had to do it in the dead of the night because if the fans had known they would have laid their bodies on the road to stop the moving trucks. Like it was that bad. I I, I think it would be a colossal mistake. I, I do agree. NBA should be in Vegas. Sure. This isn't the team. No, it's not. Well, the other thing I think that the, those rumors ignore is the Adelsons are now, I guess, Mrs. Adelson owns properties in places that aren't Vegas already. Doesn't the Sands have a casino in like Macau? Yeah. I think it is. So yeah, they're already used to having highly profitable um, outlets for the Adelson brand in other places. They don't have some weird psychological need to move stuff to Vegas. They like to make money and God bless them, right? Like they're good at that. I think they'll do what makes them money, and I think what makes them money is keeping that team in Dallas. More than that, and 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 I we don't get political on this podcast. I'm no, only, we do not. I'm only referencing this to connect the dots. I'm not giving a this is a good thing or a bad thing. The Adelsons are big Republican backers. Yes, they are. Texas is a state run by Republicans, and the Adelsons have been lobbying for years to push the Texas legislature to expand legal gambling in texas right now we pretty much have uh the lottery and if you play poker in the privacy of your own home they're probably not going to kick open the doors beyond that uh we don't have casinos in the state anything like that the adelsons have been pushing wait hold on john i am shocked that you're alleging that any of our 30 million native texans might go to a remote cabin somewhere to play poker that that I, i i I don't need, I'm not sure I can say in this room. What the Taylor County Sheriff's Department doesn't know won't hurt them. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So that is, that is one of the theories out there. Like a lot of people said, oh, she's going to move the, the team to Vegas. Uh, that's been some of the rumors flying around out in Vegas. But closer to home, the, the rumors are, this is a sign that she uh, is getting more involved in sports as her crew have been lobbying our legislature to allow sports books in the state of Texas, so, which would be nice because then my bet MGM app would work here without me getting on to a VPN. Not that I've ever done that because that might not be illegal, uh, might not be legal, and I've never done it. But I, I you know, somebody I, theoretically I could. I didn't even know that set of of circumstances, and I'm actually glad you connected those dots, right? Uh, so, y'all, if you're listening. We don't rehearse this show. We put together a run sheet over the course of like 10 minutes so we know what we're going to talk about. And then we just kind of go. 
So I had no idea those words were going to come out of your mouth. And it pains me to say this, John, because I've known you for like a decade and I haven't said it, but like twice, but I, I think you're right. And that's a really good point. Okay. Normally I end the show when you give me a compliment, because it's not going to get any better for me from here, but yeah, we got other things to talk. It about. is time to get into some Vegas WTF. So we've got some new stories, not our normal ones. These are some odd happenings in Vegas. We're going to start at Luxor. So there's a Facebook user. I won't say his last name. His first name's Tony. Um, and this was from a Facebook post. He goes by the name Solo Las Vegas, or maybe that's the name of the group he posted this in. And the post says it's for group members only, but somebody screenshot it and put it in the wild. So I don't think the man wanted his last name everywhere. So I'm not going to say it, but it's been all over X, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's been all those places. But I'm, I'm just, I'm actually going to read this. We normally just summarize stories. We don't read them. But Tony posted this. So I'm a little weirded out. I got to my room yesterday at Luxor and the digital key doesn't work. So I trudge all the way, uh, all my stuff, three miles to the desk to get a card. I do my thing and go back uh, out to the casino about four. About 1130, I go back to my room and neither key nor the card work. It really is so far to the desk. I have to walk one whole side of the pyramid and then diagonally corner to corner. I get to the desk and there are like 30 people online. So I go to VIP. Your cards were accidentally disabled, but it's okay because we knew you'd come down. Huh? Whatever. Get to the room, go to bed, shower in the morning, and nothing in the shower is where I left it. A towel was used and not left hanging how I'd leave it. Shower gel left open, shower sponge moved, nothing else is amiss. Credit cards on the dresser, recreational prescription, nothing disturbed. Did someone come into my room and have a shower? I don't really know what, I don't really want to invest much time in this. It's just weird. Bill, anybody ever shower in your room while you were out and about? So two things, yeah. I have I have personally witnessed cases of the of a hotel somewhere, not the Luxor, but you know various hotels. Every now and again, giving keys to the same rooms to two different people. So that's that is absolutely theoretically possible, right? Like that's a thing which has happened. I think the thing which is weird to me about Tony's story is a dude who's talking about his recreational prescription. So I'm assuming he means recreational marijuana. So a dude who's, you know, in, enjoying something which can sometimes have memory-altering effects says that somebody came into his room and did nothing but shower. Like, they didn't take his stuff. They didn't arrange anything else. He didn't notice it till the next morning when he woke up. The only thing they did is shower. And they, I'm not going to lie, that story is super weird. So, and then the other thing in here in the, his second paragraph, he says, neither the key nor the card work. I just stayed at the Luxor in the pyramid. Uh, it's all cards. They, they don't have keys anymore. So I don't know if this is a typo or how old this post is. Sometimes things from way back in the day come back around on the internet. But if this is a recent story, it's recently circulating, but there's no date on the Facebook post that somebody screenshotted. Uh, yeah, homie, they don't give keys anymore. That's not, I don't know when the last time you got a key key in Vegas was, but that's not how they roll anymore. Um, I can't imagine the scenario where somebody got a room key, but then if you, 
If you go in and you realize it's not your room and that's not your stuff, do you shower? Or is the first thing you do when you get to your room shower and then come out and go, oh crap, this isn't my room? Like, this is a profoundly weird story and I don't know if it's a true thing and it's just weird. I don't know if like we've joked about this before in Luxor, the halls around the rooms in the pyramid do feel creepy. People say it's haunted. I don't think it's haunted, but did a ghost come have a shower or uh, did Tony overindulge in that uh, <clears throat> recreational prescription and uh, lose track of a few things? And to be clear, y'all, we're not judging Tony because, well, that's not a choice that I make in Vegas. I, You know what? I may have had more than one martini in the same evening in yeah. Vegas. I can understand having incomplete memories of what's happened. So there's not a judgment here. I'm just... Yeah, so some something smells funny about your story, yo. Yeah, and I and I and let me put it this way: I'm not calling the man a liar. I believe he believes something weird happened, and and look, it's Vegas. Maybe it did. It's just it's just weird. But we're not going to judge Tony, but we are going to judge some other people. And I didn't put this on the run sheet. Uh, this was all over the place. So uh, a couple of young ladies were a little overserved while walking around the wind. And uh, we are not telling this story, but I can sympathize with what happens when you're overserved in that building. Um, <laughs> and we will never tell that story ever. Ever, uh, wait, ever, was, ever, was there a story, John? No, there is no story. Anyway. Wait, these, so did theoretically, no. I need to shut up now? Yeah. Okay, cool. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, uh, these young ladies decided they wanted to turn the Christmas display. Were they at the buffet? No, they were at the Christmas display, and they decided to make it an interactive experience. And security had to drag them out of the beautiful wind flowers. Um <laughs> Why yeah. don't I get to see stuff like that in Vegas? I know. Those things never happen when we're there. It's so disappointing. All right. And one more weird one. So Sin City Alerts on Twitter, X, whatever Elon's calling it these days, um, reports that there's a Las Vegas security guard telling stories that they were called to a room in a, in a hotel tower. The uh, Sin City Alerts tweet didn't specify the hotel. Other sources have claimed it's the Venetian. Not 100% sure if that's true. Uh, but anyway, a guest was complaining because he had a, a, a room and the adjoining room or the room next door, somebody was shooting cheese whiz, or I'm, I'm assuming that canned easy cheese under the doorway into his room. And they were giggling and laughing while they did it. So he got hit by the cheese bandit. So I believe every word of that story. I do too. Because that is absolutely the something something that somebody who had over Vegas or was new in the ways of Vegas or whatever, I could absolutely see them doing that. We've talked before, John, about taking our, our various sons to Vegas as they progressively turn 21. And <clears throat> my youngest son, and I'm not going to lie, I can see your youngest son doing the same thing. I can absolutely see either of those young men being the cheese whiz sprayer, right? So it's, I can imagine how something like this might happen. So I want to know, was Beck in town doing a concert? Because I think somebody was influenced by some 90s music and decided to get crazy with the cheese whiz. <laughs> so uh, I apologize to millennials, boomers, and Gen Z who have no idea what I'm saying, but Gen X, you feel me, right? You know what? You go get crazy with the cheese whiz, John. Getting crazy with the cheese whiz. All right. So, so 
can I talk about before we sign out? Can I talk about one last like legit news story? Let's have some good news instead of weird news, Bill. All right. So y'all, we usually do more regular news, but there was just so much compelling WTF coverage we had to do it. I do want to close with one last regular news story, and you've heard us talking about this before. But um, because of a job I had in the past, I've got a deep interest in water levels in the western United States. And in Vegas, you've got a real problem because almost all your water comes from Lake Mead. Um, the And all the water in Lake Mead comes from the Colorado River. And, and based on rainfall in a period between 1915 and 1917, the, the western states, as well as the Native American tribe, as well as Mexico, were promised more water than there is on that river. For decades and decades, that didn't matter because there weren't people out there. At least there weren't enough people to draw on the water. But as time went on, as populations of the western United States expanded, that became, whatever, everybody started to draw their full rights, and that meant that the levels in Lake Mead started to slowly decline. That's why you can see that white bathtub ring around Lake Mead. And it was getting down to the problem, to the point where at some point the Hoover Dam wasn't going to be able to generate electricity anymore and Vegas wasn't going to have water to draw from. But the good news is that Lake Mead is now 20 feet higher than it was last year when it was getting down to critical levels. And it's actually at the same level that it was in 2021. And what that means is because of a good snowfall last year, they've decreased or they've eliminated two years of decline in the water levels in the lake, which is huge news if you want to be able to take a bath next time you're in Vegas. There's actually more good news. NOAA, the National Oceanic um, and Atmospheric Administration, is predicting another good snowfall this winter. And what puts water in Lake Mead isn't rainfall, usually, because there's not very much of it. It's snowfall in the mountains upstream, and then in the spring, that melts. And NOAA thinks thinks there's a pretty reasonable chance that there's going to be a high snowfall, which isn't going to result in higher lake levels right now, but will result in higher lake levels in the spring as the snow melts. Yeah, and that will be phenomenal news. Well, that's just about going to wrap up this episode. It is December 6th, so we're going to get in at least one, maybe two more episodes towards the end of the year because we've got to talk about some of our 2023 best ofs and favorite moments. Uh, But we're not going to do that tonight. So, Bill, as we sign off, why don't you tell everybody where they can find us? You can find us on Dine Drink Vegas on Instagram, on X, and on Facebook. We also hope that you'll check out the Dine Drink Vegas Vegas Facebook page where we try to bring you short and focused videos to give you the information you need to plan your next trip to Vegas. I think you meant YouTube. I, that's exactly what I meant, but I need more whiskey. And you can also find me at Dine Drink John on the uh, artist formerly known as Twitter. I refuse to make Mr. Musk happy. <laughs> uh, and we would love to hear your comments, your feedback, your questions. Tell us what we got wrong in sports predicting. And uh, you could tell us your favorite memories from 2023. Maybe we'll share a few of those on the next podcast. And until then, thanks for listening and happy travels.